This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, welcome to the best of the minefield, the best of our 2020 output coming to you now in 2021 uh, and new content to come in 2021 very very soon but as we look back on the best that we had to do uh, this topic was one that kept coming up I think throughout the year and so uh, this would have been the first foray into the topic that we did well there are these my name Scott Stevens is my co-host Scott this was seminal in some ways for us it really was so we discussed cancel culture and the nature and limits of harm and hate speech It really was, despite everything else that was happening last year, this was one of those topics, if you like, that tracked the breakdown of so many aspects of civic discourse and the prospects of moral deliberation. I'm also very proud to say, Willie, that one of the wonderful outcomes of that particular show is it spurred you into writing a fabulous monthly article that we discussed at the end of last year. So for to my mind, that's a kind of double benefit. Well, in some ways, that article, I think, was already beginning and I hadn't really done enough thinking about it and this kind of helped along the way. Mm. So most of what I have to say here, I am sure I disown. Uh, I'm not sure. I can't really remember. But a let's few things you even changed it. your mind. Oh, that might be true. Oh, dear. I'm worried now. I I love the topics that we keep returning to. Because I think in many ways, the fact that we have to keep returning to this topic tells us something both about the moral complexity of the topic, but also something about the nature of moral deliberation. I've actually been thinking a lot, just before we get into the topic itself, you know, our beloved humanities are under tremendous, tremendous... Uh, economic institutional strain at the moment due to all sorts of different forms of disruption, the latest being, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic. But it just strikes me, Willie, that one of the great virtues, one of the great disciplines, one of the great sort of personal, quite apart from professional habits, that a lot of the academics that we know and love have cultivated over their time within their various disciplines is the ability to remain with something that is abnormally, unbelievably, unconscionably complex over weeks, months, years, in some cases, even decades. Because there's something about remaining with something that you find complex or insoluble, or maybe something that just jars so badly with what you thought Uh, the situation or the matter at hand ought to be, and yet the refusal to rush too quickly to judgment, the ability to remain, to linger with something that you find inherently contradictory. Um, uh, Hegel had a beautiful, beautiful phrase for this in his Phenomenology of Spirit. He referred to it as the ability to tarry with the negative, to stay with something that you don't understand or don't like or don't agree with, and to allow that process of remaining with it over a period of time to create something new or different by the very process of not rushing to judgment, of remaining with it uh, uh, for as long as you have, not preempting, if you like, the solution. Does that describe for you something like some of the values or the virtues or the disciplines that the humanities brings along with it? Uh, yes, broadly. I'm beginning to wonder if that's still true. Mm, I think that's right. Um, because of external pressures and exigencies rather than necessarily internal changes to various disciplines? Uh, certainly the former, maybe not the latter. 
I need to think about the latter. Okay. I think the problem with this, and I don't want to spend much time on this particular point because we've got bigger things to talk about. Well, but believe it or not, th- we are actually talking about the point. The, well, we are actually talking extent. about the bigger things, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like it's hard to make grand statements about the state of the humanities because it's so vast mm. and so varied across different universities. But I will say that we are in an age that is really about, you know, rapid flight to particular positions on complex mm. issues in mm-hmm. very public ways that then make you more or less politically aligned <laughs> to those positions. Mm. I think um, that's right. And so, and I think that's probably happening within the sort of the tomes of the academy just as much as, well, not just as much, but um, as well as outside of it. Mm. Anyway. I think you're right. And I think that rushing to conclusions across the surface of extraordinary complexity that also reflects, if you like, the efficiency dividend uh, that many departments, researchers are being placed under. This actually, if dear listener, if you've not guessed it, we're actually very, very close to the topic we want to discuss today. Last week, an open letter appeared under the auspices of Harper's Magazine. It was signed, I'm sure you saw, by more than 150 renowned authors and academics, many of whom have been on this program. Academics who are across the ideological spectrum and who are drawn from quite a remarkable range of disciplines. People like Margaret Atwood, Salman Rushdie, Khaled Khalifa, and J.K. Rowling from the world of uh, novel writing and fiction. Uh, historians like Sean Willens, David Blight, and Mia Bay, uh, philosophers and legal theorists like Zephyr Teachout, Samuel Moyne, Drusilla Cornell, public intellectuals like Noam Chomsky, David Frum, Gloria Steinem, political theorists and sociologists like Yasha Monk, Melvin Rogers, Uday Mehta, Francis Fukuyama. As I go through that list, well, it's almost impossible to imagine a topic that could get that many people onto the same page. I mean, in this instance, quite literally on the same page. All the names are there. They're all signing up to register their particular complaint with what they regard as a a kind of prevailing censoriousness. And just to quote the letter, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and a tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. And they're saying that what this does, this rush to certain conclusions and this ostracism to those who find themselves incapable or unwilling or just not at the point yet of being able to give voice to a particular opinion, uh, that this, uh, this prevailing censoriousness is constricting what is essential to democratic society, to liberal democratic society specifically, namely the free exchange of information and of ideas. Now, they don't use the term cancel culture. But in pretty much all the responses to the letter, and certainly in public discourse, this is what we usually mean by it. This uh, attempt, and I think it really is the doing of reputational damage and the prosecution in public discourse of persons who have found, who have been found to step beyond the pale of a particular form of discourse or uh, who have fallen foul of a particular form of political or moral judgment and have therefore found themselves, quote unquote, canceled. Now, Waleed, I'm not sure about you. I, I'm not a fan of the term cancel culture. Why is that? Uh, I think it imposes way too much simplicity over what is an incredibly complex form of judgment. I think it also makes it sound more unified and even conspiratorial than it in fact is. 
Um, I think really? it's just saying it's a culture. That, that's not a conspiracy. Well, yes. That's just a, a pattern of behaviour, a sort of series of shared habits. Yeah, but I think the other thing that I don't quite like about it is that it does give the sense, and certainly the way that it's being used and the way that I think it's being weaponized on some, in some wings of modern or contemporary public discourse, there really is a kind of left-wing or radical or progressive implication in the term cancel culture. Whereas, I mean, what would we describe? I mean, you and I both lived through this, you far more poignantly than I did. What would you describe the form of censoriousness, of kind of patriotic chest beating and suffocation of forms of dissent that accompanied the post 9-11? Yeah, so there's lots of hypocrisy to go around here, but that's true with a lot of these terms. So I I think about terms like cancel culture or um, virtue signaling or political correctness. I think they all have the same dynamics to them, namely that they are a term that one side of, I'm using this in broad terms, one side of politics uses to describe the other side, but which aptly describes the side that's using it very, very well. Mm -hmm. So for political correctness, um, I'm going to use left and right, even though I detest those terms. I'm I'm, I'm doing like a verbal asterisk here because I hate (laughs) using those terms. But they're appropriate here because I think those terms only describe gangs that hate each other and don't Mm. describe, it doesn't describe much else. And that's kind of what we have. So let's go with that. So... The right talks about political correctness. The right engages in political correctness as vehemently as anybody else. It's just you might call it patriotic correctness or some other variant of it, but it has its shibboleths and it has its orthodoxies that it demands uh, compliance with and it will eviscerate anyone who dares violate that orthodoxy. Um, The same is true with virtue virtue signalling. The right has its its virtue signalling. It's just a different set of virtues Mm. that it wishes to signal, but it's just as full of any posturing as the left might be. And I think the same is true with cancel culture. Now, so I acknowledge those problems. That, however, doesn't mean that I get on board with people who object to those terms having any kind of meaning. I think they do have a meaning. The fact that they're used hypocritically and selectively doesn't mean that they don't have meaning. I would, I think it's probably better just to broaden the application of those meanings so that they describe a more thoroughgoing comprehensive phenomenon than merely saying this is something that the other side does. Mm. So, yes, um, if your critique of the idea of cancel culture is that, well, you know, this should have been used to describe a whole lot of things that the right has engaged in. I'm totally on board with that, but that doesn't make it meaningless. Mm. No, that's that's fair enough. I think what probably is new, though, about the current moment, which maybe wasn't unheard of or not present uh, 20 years ago, but I think is being weaponized and deployed in certain kind of unforeseen ways now, is the degree of reputational damage that I think is being done precisely by audiences who then find forms of expression through social media mechanisms, ways of registering with extraordinary volume in some cases, their discontent with those who are then bound because of their institutional place to take those forms of expression of discontent seriously and then find the reputational damage that's done by the person who is being quote-unquote cancelled, then given, if you like, a degree of either legislative uh, or institutional effect, namely to be fired or whatever else. Um, So I think there's some way, I mean, that wasn't, of course, unheard of 
uh, 20 years ago, far from. Uh, but I think the way that this is now being leveled across a number of fields, a number of disciplines, and a number of figures, I think there is something kind of interesting and different going on here that gives cancellation a sort of barb that maybe it didn't quite have. Yeah, I think so. But I I don't know. Do we just want to get to the heart of this matter? Yes, please. And that is the question of whether or not cancel culture is unduly censorious so that it becomes a threat to free speech. Because what you're witnessing now, what I think is interesting about the letter that you mentioned, but also the one that you didn't mention was the open, I suppose it was an opinion piece, wasn't it, published by more people than I can count who are in the creative industries, yes. film, literature, so on here in Australia, that was in response to an uproar over a short film that won an award for best director at the Sydney Film Festival. Um, and that uproar was based on an allegation that that film was racist and created it had a racist scene. Uh, and then you had a whole lot of people, which included very, very serious um, Indigenous, lots of people of colour who were signed on to this, who made the point that, no, no, this criticism is invalid. And it's a really problematic criticism to weaponise a term that's often weaponised against um, in support of these sorts of allegations. So this sort of thing is going on. What I think is interesting about it is that it's not a divide that is really a left-right divide anymore. Mm, this right. has become a, a bit of a left-left divide to continue using these crude terms I hate. And what it really is, is a liberal, and sort of an old-school liberal, versus a contemporary woke divide. And that divide, as much as anything, seems to be generational to me. Yes, I think so, that's exactly right. So you've got, um, the, I don't know, let's say 40 is the dividing line which puts me right on the border, really. Um, <laughs> in, and if you're, if you're older than that, um, you are, your sensibilities are much more liberal. And if you're younger than that, your sensibilities are probably illiberal, even though they're informed by liberalism in really deep ways that I don't think are often acknowledged. Um, that's what we're looking at here. And then the question becomes, which side of the b debate would you rather have, Scott? Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, uh, but, but hang on. I think the other, the other thing, though, it's not just the fact that this is left-left or that this is on one side of the ideological spectrum. I think this also says something about the fact that the range of forms of disagreement within liberal democratic societies has become distended. I mean, it once was the case, I think, that you had genuinely fringe arguments on either side. And you really could hive those fringe arguments away and still leave just enough, I don't like the term too much either, but just enough center ground or just enough space where there's enough commonality, enough points of agreement that something like genuine disagreement and mutual recognition could take place in the process. With the, I mean, with whatever it is that's happened, I think social media has a lot to do with this. I think political discourse has a lot to do with this. I think the diversification of society, I think the emergence of new voices within public within the public sphere. Whatever you attribute this to, the range of ideological disagreement has distended to such an extent that we are now riddled with what I can only call incommensurable disagreement, the kind of disagreement that we would only once upon a time maybe perhaps have within, say, religious communities, that, where it's a matter right. of absolute kind of doctrinal heaven or hell, um, you know, salvation. Yes, and, and the religious analogies work, right? You've got your high priests, you've got your orthodoxies, yes. you've got all that. Right. Yeah, I understand that. 
But I, isn't that precisely what the liberal argument is trying to fight for? Yes, that's, that's exactly right. right. But I think the real moral problem then is can liberal democratic societies hold together in the face of this kind of widespread incommensurable disagreement where there is such a fundamental distrust and lack of recognition of the competing perspectives that there's no bridging language, there's no ability to use, to use that Hegelian term that I used before, to tarry with the negative, that which isn't simply assimilable within your moral perspective. Uh, and when there is this tremendous compulsion to rush to judgment. To my right. mind, these are profoundly, profoundly illiberal and also undemocratic principles. So you're on the liberal side of the argument. That's Not necessarily. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Let's see if a guest can sort you out. This is the best of the minefield, the best of our 2020 output. Uh, you can listen to the show on RN, uh, as you might be doing right now. You can catch us anytime in the ABC Listen app, but you can also subscribe to our podcast, which comes with extra content. We just keep going past the final siren. So um, do that wherever it is that you subscribe to podcasts. Scott, who's our guest? Our guest is Catherine Gelber. She's the head of School of uh, Political Science and International Studies at the University of Queensland. She's also the professor of politics and public policy. Catherine, it's wonderful to get you onto the minefield. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. So, uh, look, let's just begin with the term cancel culture itself. It does feel to me like a term that is most often weaponized by one side against another. But I'm not, like I said, I'm not sure that there really is much clarity. There certainly is much clarity in my mind about what the term is actually referring to. Do you want to give us some clarity or some stab at it? Well, I can try. <laughs> the term, I think, uh, is, like many good political slogans, misleadingly and deceptively simple. It, it seeks to give people the impression that this complex political terrain that we're currently in can be sum summed up in this way. But actually what I believe that it does is conflate many, many different concerns in pol public deliberation these days into one amorphous category. And in particular, I think it conflates... Uh, deliberately conflates problems to do with hate speech and legitimate concerns about the limits of public debate, the appropriate limits of public debate, with what you might also regard as overly censorious and illegitimate, if you like, um, attempts to close down public debate. And I think that in doing that, the term is, in, is confused and confusing. And I wouldn't blame your listeners and other people for being entirely confused by the state of the public debate around this. Because when we use these overly simplistic slogans, we're suggesting that all those issues like hate speech and deplatforming and safe spaces and the trans debate and Black Lives Matter can all somehow be put into the same pot and treated in exactly the same way. And I don't think they can. I think we need to start separating out these issues, dealing with each one on its own merits. That's the only way out of this confusion, in my view. But see, I don't think it is about the issues being conflated. I think it's a critique of a mode of argument. And that mode of argument, I think, can be commonly observed across a whole range of different issues. It's a mode of argument that is defined by an, an unwillingness to engage in actual back and forth, the hurling of quite serious allegations, but in such a way that does not really admit for any kind of meaningful reply, and a sort of a preparedness to go into the history of people's conduct from however long ago and demand some kind of confession 
out of them, yeah. which is actually connected to a particular worldview, like a particular ideological theory, like a social theory about how progress is to be done. It, it demands confession in this way. Um, so these are very specific modes of argumentation or not argumentation, really just modes of activism that I think are, are up for critique, irrespective of the subject matter of those sorts of things. And I would say the, the most obvious observation to make is that mode of argumentation or activism, which I think deserves to be critiqued, has existed on the right for a long time and now is emerging from the left on the, for, on the platform of social media, but is worthy of critique on its own terms. I don't think we need to say that it's an overly confused category. That is discoverable and that is something that you can discuss and analyse. Look, I agree that there, that this is, a, in fact, a dangerous moment in global politics for the very reasons that you have just outlined. I agree that cancel culture, the term cancel culture, is capable of encapsulating the concerns that you've raised. And I agree that those concerns are very, very worrying. Um, but I also think that the term is being used, for example, by Donald Trump in a way that seeks to encapsulate more. So, again, like many good political slogans, there's an element of truth in this, right? There is an element of absolutely serious concern about incommensurable disagreement, um, about the lack of bridging language, about the inability to understand that disagreement is not harmful and that even in civil disagreement is not harmful and shouldn't be shut down. And we absolutely need to find better ways and new ways of having conversations and of respecting disagreement. Uh, but I think the term itself contributes to, I still disagree with you, I still think the term itself contributes to confusion around that, even though it has, like all good political slogans, it has an element of truth and, and of hitting really home on a real and concrete and substantive problem in it. Quite, quite apart from the actual issues at play, though, and let me just sort of remain at the level of the form of quote-unquote cancel culture before we get into the substance of it. At the level of form, it seems to me that there are two inseparable elements to the way in which it's being deployed. One is the fact that these tend not to be face-to-face -face or in-person disagreements. In other words, they are forms of disagreement that are taking place on an immensely public platform and therefore have other things added into it, the possibility of different forms of group or even mob behavior, uh, the benefit or the detriment of anonymity, of unanswerability, all those sorts of things that go along it's with... It's ritualized and performative. It well, is ritualized and performative, absolutely. But I think the other dimension here that I don't know if has really been touched on enough is the dimension of time. So the sort of thing that might ordinarily need to take place over a period of time through a complex series of back and forth that might end up with something like a degree of moral or political reform of oneself and one's moral outlook is being so compressed and being brought into a single moment that it's kind of like a yes or no absolute decision is being accelerated and years or decades or even centuries of oppression or injustice are being made to, if you like, be expunged uh, on this person's life at a particular time. Those are two formal elements, I think, that really are central to what we're talking about. 
Yes, I think that there's an analogy here with uh, the in traditional free speech ideas for a very long time, for decades. There's been a traditional kind of divide between what you might understand as political speech, which is the kind of deliberative speech that people engage in in order to self-govern and which is important to democracy and which is relevant to not just elections but more broadly decisions about how we want to live, how to live well, um, what kind of society we want to live in, and other types of speech which people traditionally regarded as more easily regulable. And the classic one of those is commercial speech where corporations traditionally, you know, you could regulate, for example, cigarette packaging without there being a free speech argument that that cigarette manufacturers have the right to display their products regardless of the consequences. So there was this differentiation. And one of the arguments about the digital culture is that that differentiation is entirely breaking down. Like we really, we as a community expect and want our corporations now to make political statements on all of these issues. And if they, they don't, they face the risk of boycotts. And so corporations are being required to engage themselves in political speech in order for their uh, profit margins and for their normal corporate conduct to be able to survive. So we're really seeing the um, the undermining of some really some traditional boundaries and and understandings of different types of speech and different forms of speech that used to be meaningful that are no longer meaningful or that are reducing in meaning in the social media age. And then you add to that that sort of reduction of categories that help us to understand complex ideas. You add to that all the other associated problems of social media. We've, we've got very well-documented evidence now of algorithmic bias um, that operates in all kinds of ways, not just to determine what people see, but the kinds of things people are pushed towards on social media, amplification of mechanisms and scope of harm, echo chambers, the problem of people uh, getting their news through their Facebook news feed instead of everybody reading the same newspaper and so people are, are listening to the ideas that they want to listen to rather than to ones they want to be confronted by. So, yes, the form of this uh, this debate is really undermining some of those what have been long-standing ways of understanding this debate. Mm. Catherine, I might wind you there because we're about to run out. The show's about to end. But if you think we're just getting warmed up, we are. The podcast will continue <laughs> now. That was Catherine Gelber. We'll see you next week. Uh, Catherine, Scott, thank you very yeah. much for staying with us. I, I, um, I want to talk about that notion of traditional modes of discourse breaking down because that, I think, was what was beneath what you were saying or even actually at the surface of what you were saying there, Catherine. Um, I think the problem that we have here... And the reason this becomes a woke versus liberal argument is that at the heart of this is a critique of structure and power. Without those concepts, there is no way of accessing this debate and there is no way of understanding the claims that cancel culture is making, really. And that is that traditional modes of parry and thrust, of back and forth, of some kind of discursive resolution are irredeemably broken um, corrupt and necessarily conservative because they only can operate to preserve certain power structures and privileging. That seems to me to be a basic criticism. And once you accept that that is true, firstly, that that's a true description of our current reality, um, such that certain voices will always be excluded, systematically and structurally excluded, often by, you know, voices that belong to disadvantaged groups. So once you accept that that is a true description of reality and that there is no means by which liberal theories of, of discourse and public conversation and debate and collaboration can remedy that into the future, 
then you are left only with the radical option of burning the house down in one way or another. That is, you suspend all of the norms of civil disagreement and discourse on the basis that those norms have never been afforded to the disadvantaged voices or the minority groups or whichever groups you want to talk about in the past. So why should they afford them now? That's the central critique here. And it becomes entirely about power. The reason that this kind of discourse is justified is that it comes from the powerless directed at the powerful. And there is no other justification, really. There's no other justification that's even needed. It then becomes a question as to whether or not you accept that notion of power, that sort of understanding of the idea of power, whether it makes sense and is a compelling vision of power. And then, secondly, whether or not power would be enough of a justification for this kind of engagement. I think they're the questions that are actually really before us. And we then need to figure out what we think about those questions. But can't you accept that view of power, accept the view that the libertarian defences of free speech upon which liberal democracies have relied have been flawed in so far as speech was not free in those models either and that we can recognise the power critique without having to burn the joint down. So there are, there's a, there are other ways to step into that breach for want of a, you know, for, to use a slightly old-fashioned term, there's a social democratic way to step into that breach. There's a capabilities-informed way to step into that breach, neither of which require you to burn the house down to achieve the goal of wanting to have a platform on which, on which those who have traditionally and systemically been excluded can get a seat at the, you know, at the table to extend the metaphor in a very messy way. So I think that you can accept that critique of power, which, and I'm very sympathetic to that critique. I'm very sympathetic to that critique that libertarian view of free speech implies a, a, a level playing field, and there has never been a level playing field, and people have systemically been excluded without then saying necessarily, therefore, the conclusion is that we need to burn the house down because there are so many other ways to step into that breach, and that's where I'd like to see this debate go. Yeah, yeah. I imagine that you would like to see that debate go that way. And there are a handful of people who are sympathetic to that notion or that critique of power who remain liberals nonetheless, who would also like to see the debate move down that path. But if you have reached the conclusion that liberalism can only reproduce and reinforce power structures by its very nature, that's all that it will ever be able to do, then that isn't an option. So it comes down to a matter of, uh, I was going to say faith. Maybe that's the right word, maybe it's not. Dogma, maybe. Maybe it just comes down to a question of commitment to a particular social theory, right? But if, if you're taking that objectivist a look at this, that structuralist a, a look at this, then that's where you end up. And that's why this becomes this, this form of discourse, this kind of what we're trying to capture with the term cancel culture. That's why it comes across as so radical and absolutist, because it kind of is, <laughs> because that's precisely the critique that it's mounting. Yes, I agree. That is the critique it's mounting. But it's a, and it's a critique you said a moment ago, if you believe that liberalism can only reproduce those power structures. And I guess maybe you could call me a liberal for wanting to challenge that statement. You could, although I don't call myself a liberal. Um, but... The word only is important there. Like liberalism has done a lot of things. Yes, it has produced reproduced power structures. There is no doubt about it. 
but it's better than despotism and it's better than authoritarianism. It's flawed, it's deeply flawed, but do we throw it out completely? Because what are we, if, we, if we break the joint, if we wreck the joint, we're going to, the way it looks, the way it looks at global politics is going at the moment. If we wreck the joint, we're going to end up in a worse situation for human rights. We're going to end up in a worse situation for the people who are raising these very powerful and very legitimate critiques. I think that's probably true, but this is where I think the age divide is important. And mm, I want your view right. on this, Scott. Yeah. Um, because I think you are inclined to see things in the way that Catherine has just articulated it. If you are from an age where progress was achieved via liberalism. If you're from a young demographic, I th what I see happening is a, a really quite committed conclusion that liberalism has failed. It's failed economically, um, it's failed politically, and it has delivered nothing to the younger generations. Liberal democracies themselves have completely fallen over as far as young people are concerned because demographics just mean they're on the losing side of every democratic argument. It happened with Brexit, it happened with Trump, it's happening on climate change, it's happening on housing pricing, house pricing, mm. housing policy generally. Wherever you look, the structures of liberalism have frozen out young people. So they have no fealty to it. Whereas Catherine's generation, your generation, Scott, my generation probably are a bit more familiar with the possibilities or at least the idea that liberalism holds some kind of possibility for progress. That's why we are where we are, isn't it? And that, that's why it's such a generational divide. Look, I, I, think that's, I think that's right. I think the generational divide is very, very important. I think the fact that the different letters, the different open letters that we've been talking about Really, I mean, the, the letter that appeared in Harper's has been criticized as being a bunch of kind of established elite white people. I, I think that's unfair, except for the established and the elite bit. These are people who do belong to a particular, on a particular side of the generational divide. They are people who have succeeded according to the rules of the game, if I can put it, or in some cases against the rules of the game, but have succeeded on liberal capitalism's terms nonetheless. I guess something that, that is interesting here for me, though, is that there is also something, though, historically recognizable about this particular impulse. If you go back to the critiques of gradualism that were at the heart of the civil rights movement in the mid-1960s, or if you go back to the uh, critiques of a different form, an older, a more morally compromised form of gradualism there in the anti-abolitionist sentiment, especially in the United States in the mid-19th century, you have much the same critique that essentially a particular form of success, of corrupt power and the accumulation of wealth at the expense of the bodies of those who are least worthy and most vulnerable has been allowed to accumulate and accrue for decades or generations or even centuries. And now the very people who are themselves complicit, to use some of the language of the abolitionists, whose hands are dripping with blood from the bodies of those who have given their lives in order to produce that sugar or pick that cotton or guarantee the housing or financial success of those who live in the right areas of New England or Chicago or whatever. For those now to claim you're going too fast, you want revolution too quickly, you want to try to bring about a change of things in such a way that it runs counter to liberal and democratic principles, that critique of gradualism is that there is a supervening claim here, and it's something like capital J justice. And in the face of capital J justice, you need to do two things. First of all, the time itself needs to accelerate. You can't can't say that the same amount of time that uh, 
that uh, established this condition of injustice is now the time that it's going to take to unwind this condition of injustice. But the other thing, and this is what really, what I find kind of remarkable about our moment, and then 70 or 50 years ago, and then 100 years before that, the idea of acknowledging complicity in a situation of gross injustice really is crucial, that even if you yourself are not guilty of this particular moral sin, say, owning slaves or, say, uh, um, deep racist, racist sentiment, you are nonetheless, you're a winner in the world that slavery or that racism created. And so I think one of the things we do need to acknowledge here is that for one side of the debate, to begin urging forms of calm, no, you need to moderate and temper your discourse. You need to find forms of social and democratic deliberation that are going to be more conducive to persuading your enemies. I mean, I, I, I might not agree with this critique, but I can understand how another side who is motivated by capital J justice, whose passions are inflamed and who have simply run out of moral patience, I can kind of understand how that call for a more patient, a more structured, a more conducive form of deliberation might sound kind of morally hollow. And so it seems to me that we need to then go back beyond that and say that there is a way in which the forms of the overcoming or the negotiation of incommensurable disagreement, the way that we try to engage with those forms of disagreement, there is a way in which that overcoming of disagreement has to be tempered. It has to be modified. It can't simply be along the terms of uh, a feat or neutral or dispassionate uh, uh, democratic or liberal negotiation. There needs to be some form of acknowledgement of complicity, there needs to be a kind of disempowerment uh, on one side, uh, at least, of the divide. Um, but then that needs to give rise to something that really does allow for the process whereby genuine moral reform, the genuine kind of conversion to a commitment uh, to justice does in fact come about. So here I think is where the, the political and the moral dimensions of this argument really do need to be reconsidered. Catherine, what would your answer to that critique be? I'm in agreement with a great deal of what Scott just said. I think that's a very um, perceptive view of what's going on. But I think, uh, I think that what, what we've lost sight of or what we've forgotten how to do is to build allies. So I am absolutely sympathetic to the view that, you know, the people who have who are calling for justice today have suffered decades, if not centuries, of wildly disproportionate injustice, which is resulting today in them still being shot and killed and, and discriminated against and marginalised in all kinds of very substantive ways. And the call for justice now is right. It's a good call. But how do you get justice? You get justice by building allies. You get justice by moving people, not from where you want them to start from, but from where they are, moving them towards more progressive views, moving them towards an understanding. And really what's absolutely crucial in this debate is relearning how to have conversations in a way that can build allies, that can build movements, that can build uh, enough weight for change. And yes, I understand that it needs to happen now. And certainly on climate change, there's no question it has to happen now. Otherwise, uh, the planet just isn't going to make it. So I understand that uh, that desire for wanting things to happen right now. Um, but how do you do that? You do that by building allies. 
It does. Except the argument it, would be that this is exactly how you build those allies, right? You effectively intimidate them. You set a series of norms and you say this is the only acceptable position, which is why you get this kind of confessional response. Have you noticed lately that those who have been even like got a glimpse of the possibility of cancellation, their response has been immediately some kind of grovelling apology, mm, right? That's true. Because yeah. that is partly that's how they demonstrate their commitment to the ideals, but also that's, that's the method, right? And then you build allies more or less by force. Now, you may or may not like that, but this is the strategy, it seems to me. It's a way of, um, of norm-setting that is particularly strident. And but the argument, I imagine, would be that's precisely how the right succeeded <laughs> over the past however many decades. That's, so, not, that's not building allies. That's building compliance. That's, right. that's intimidating people into compliance. That's not the same thing as allies at all because deep down they resent you for that. Deep down they think, oh, no, this is terrible and I'm just going to step back from the debate now entirely because I don't know how to intervene in a way that isn't going to put a target on my back. So that's not building allies. I think that's a really, really crucial point. And this is where, believe it or not, I think we do go back then to the middle of the 19th century and someone like John Stuart Mill and Ralph Waldo Emerson's critique of the inherent violence of conformity. I mean, conformity is a way of using shame to coerce a form of compliance that either suffocates the soul, that suffocates the moral self, or that drives the moral self into a form of inexpressive exile. Now, I fully acknowledge that that is precisely what has been done to various forms of dissent and various sorts of people over decades, centuries, possibly millennia. I have no doubt about that. But I think if we understand the devastation that conformity causes to the self and the soul, it's wrong then, I think, to enforce that or try to inflict that on somebody else. And that's where we, again, I think we need to acknowledge, I mean, why would somebody come forward with a particular opinion when the, when the implications of coming forward with that opinion are potentially so grave. It seems to me we have two options there. One, and I think a lot of people do this on social media, coming forward with a particular opinion is a way of staking, planting one's flag in the ground and saying effectively, who's with me? Now, I think that's a form of, that, that's a bastardized form of political discourse. That's a form of the worst kind of tribalism that isn't meant to persuade. It's not intended to persuade. It's just meant to rally. But I think the other reason that someone might come for, forward with an opinion is this is where I'm up to. I mightn't have the right words. This is how far I've come in my understanding of a particular issue. And it is a kind of invitation, isn't it, for other persons of goodwill who might disagree to say, these are the resonances of your words that you don't hear. This is the implications yeah, yeah, of what you're saying. That's, that's kind of what's happening, right? Hence the apologies in response. Well, no, no, I mean, that's, that's right, but I think that in a very real way, that's not also not what's happening. That ineffective or, sure. or ill-considered formulations or even genuine expressions of one's moral conviction are themselves so lacerated in advance that that person can't then be heard further and maybe doesn't want to be heard further. And that, I mean, that's just not anti-democratic. That's also a kind of, that, that's a suffocation of the soul, I think. Right. So here's the thing though, right? 
By the way, I, I'm not particularly enamoured of the work argument here and the work approach. I just feel like there's a big hole in this conversation where it needs to be rearticulated. But the way I think it proceeds from a certain assumption that there are certain things that structure the world. And one of the things that structures the world in a very significant way is speech is people's language. Hence the flight that you've seen from describing language as being, say, bigoted or um, somehow ignorant to being harmful, hmm. right? That, that all of these things become reconstructed as harm-based, safety-based conversations. When you say something against me that is prejudiced, I experience harm, I am unsafe, right? That's a, that's a very different switch. But I would think what that's acknowledging, or sorry, what that's pointing towards, what that's trying to articulate is that the world becomes structured by language. And so, yes, Catherine, you're right. These are not people who become allies by their will and by persuasion. They are people who become compliant by being coerced. But if that restructures the language, if that restructures the world then the world will necessarily change. Now, I think that reflects, that, that, that's partly what is deeply illiberal about this and what has been illiberal about right-wing discourse for so long is that it operates in the same way. It's deeply illiberal. It becomes, um, the, the logical extensions of it become necessarily autocratic. But nonetheless, that is the theoretical assumption that is being made here. And if you've, if you've fallen completely out of love with the canons of liberalism because your generation has never really seen any benefit or never been persuaded of them, then what response is there to that? That's why we're playing for keeps at the moment in the way that our discourse goes. I think it's actually an, a, a good thing in some ways that the understanding has become very widespread in the community that speech can do things and that speech isn't merely an expression of opinion and that speech can harm. But to go back to the point I made right at the beginning, there's a great deal of confusion about that. And so anything that people feel hurts their feelings or with which they disagree can be posited in public discourse as, as you say, harmful or unsafe. And then there's a call for people to stop it. So the first thing that we need to do in that context is understand that while the world can be structured via speech, not all speech harms to a degree that it's legitimate to talk about what's harmful and unsafe. And the second thing is that the speech alone, you said the world is structured via speech. The argument isn't that the speech structures the world in and of itself. If it did, we would be living in George Orwell's 1984. The argument is that language and speech structure the world in contexts in which that speech becomes uh, weaponised or capable of, of doing what the speaker wants it to do. You can't do everything with your speech. You can only do things with your speech that matter in contexts in which that speech makes sense and which the, in which the audience and the receptors of that speech are willing to engage with the intention of the speaker. So it's not entirely divorced from reality. The world can be structured via speech in particular contexts which gives speech the capacity to do certain things and sometimes that's harm. But in my current experience, the vast majority of people who claim to be harmed by speech are wrong. They're not being harmed by it. They may have their feelings hurt and they may dislike it and they may disagree with it fundamentally, but that doesn't make it unsafe speech. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the other thing, though, and I, I, I agree with everything that Catherine just said there. I, I think one of the other things, though, that speech does, and here's, here's where I do think that a, a real sensitivity, a kind of 
hesitation about language and a very careful moderation of tone in the way in which we put forward arguments, I think it becomes very, very important precisely because the use of particular words, this is something that Immanuel Kant, I think, both recognized and formulated better than anyone else I know. Immanuel Kant did have this real perception that the way in which we deploy certain terms, the descriptions with which we categorize or classify people, does have the ability either to open up that person to being heard or to condemn that person to, I mean, the term that he used was a kind of defamation. In other words, so that that person may be speaking, but their words are effectively inexpressive. There is nothing that they have to say that we need to be able to hear. And so I think to some extent, well, I don't know if this sort of even registers for you. I realize that with many of these topics, your bent is political and mine is maybe moral philosophical, but I think here the, 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 the particular comportment that one brings to the words that are used, I think there is something there that either inclines one's listeners to hear one's opponents, or there's something about the comportment with one uses, which one uses which shuts down the opponent in advance and makes them, if you like, an object of satire or ridicule. And that's Which I think is the goal, actually. I think it is the goal, and I think here Immanuel Kant's absolute proscription of any form of speech that renders the other unworthy of attentiveness uh, uh, as violating, if you like, that person's dignity. I, I think there's something there that is maybe freshly relevant for us. Yeah. Mm. There's so much. That I got. I can, I've got a lot that I can go on with here, but our producer's screaming at us, Scott, so I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to have to leave it at that. Um, Same goes for you, Catherine. I would love to keep talking to you. Alas, we can't, but thank you very much. This is one of those topics I think we've kind of been tiptoeing around doing for a very long time in quite this way. So to have the opportunity to do it with you has been wonderful. Thank you. Appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Uh, I will say, because I didn't say before, Catherine Gilbert is Professor of Politics and Public Policy at the University of Queensland, our guest for this week's Mindfield. Uh, and I think well, I'd like to flag in advance that, Catherine, we'd love to get you back on the show to speak more precisely about the relationship between harm, speech, and hate speech. I think there's another fresh, entirely new dimension to this topic that really would be worthwhile. I'll also say to our listeners that if you want to reflect more on this, uh, Catherine Gilbert does have a wonderful piece on ABC Religion and ethics on free speech in Australian universities, the debate surrounding that topic. You can just go to abc.net.au forward slash religion. You can also read another piece by Hugh Brakey on cancel culture and open debate. That's on abc.net.au forward slash religion. And that's it. That's all of the best we had to offer for 2020. We promised to do better this year. We're going to do our very best starting next week, by the way. Uh, with new content, the 2021 season of the Minefield kicks off proper from next week, which I'm very much looking forward to, Scott. I'm glad that you're still able to tolerate me. I, oh, are you kidding, Willie? This is, without doubt, the highlight of my week. I think one of the nice things about listening back to some of these shows is hearing the ways in which gradually 
um, I don't know, one another's moral convictions and ways of looking at the world has begun to kind of rub off. It's also interesting listening Be honest, back. It's really about you influencing me. That's what's no, 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 no. Yes, no. it is. Not, a, not at all, because you are a constant voice in my head now raising little objections <laughs> to whatever it is that I, wa- that I might want to say that's a little bit too fuzzy or not clearly thought out enough. You know, one of the great gifts you ever gave me, Willie, is we were talking in the lead up to one of the shows and I gave a kind of half-assed idea about what it is we might be talking about. And you said, you know what? Let's talk again when you have a clearer idea. I don't think you have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I thought that was that was a pure grace. That was wonderful. So now I've got that on a constant loop in the back of my head. Oh, dude, that's your ringtone. It I is. don't even. I don't. You don't know what you're talking all. about. <laughs> Turn left in enough. twenty meters. Um, <laughs> call a theme. All right. Well, I, more I, gifts to come. Indeed, and and I should also say for our dear listeners who may well be listening to this, there could also be a few little changes coming for the minefield in twenty twenty one. So stay tuned and enjoy. I wasn't in on those meetings either, so I look forward to discovering it with all the listeners. <laughs> Scott, it's been a pleasure. We'll see you next week for the new year. Thanks, Willie. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.